Hello and welcome to a podcast about murder. I'm Freya and I'm here with Jem today. And Jem, are you ready to talk about murder this fine... I, I wrote morning slash afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm ready. Cool. Um, I want to address, because this is the first episode where I'm doing maybe the majority of the speaking... Um, so I wanted to address the fact that I've moved and so I don't know what sounds are going to come up in this place. Um, so just a word of warning. Um, I like how you say maybe, like you wrote the episode, but I might dominate this <laughs> this recording. <laughs> it's, it's totally possible. You're an unpredictable <laughs> character. I really don't know what will come out of you next. Um, so today's case is kind of a landmark case in British criminal history. And it's the case of the last woman to be hung in the UK. Um, That was in 1955. Her name was Ruth Ellis. Um, I remember that the front page of, I think it was the Daily Mail, um, on the day of her execution was actually hanging up as a poster in one of my history classrooms at school. um, Because of how historic this moment was. So I guess, I mean, it it strikes me as kind of weird to have that now. (laughs) I mean, it, I don't know if I'd put that in a classroom. No, maybe not. But um, but I remember it being there. Point being, you know, it was it was that historic that it was like decor in my history classroom because it meant a lot for the death penalty in general in the country, um, which hadn't yet been outlawed. It was getting the sort of cogs turning in that sense and um, the public's opinion of capital punishment and stuff like that. And there was just a lot of social aftermath, a lot of controversy at that time that ultimately would be pivotal in building momentum towards abolishing the death penalty. So let's start with a bit of background about Ruth. Um, Her mother was a Belgian refugee from the First World War, Elisabetta Gothels, and her father was Arthur Hornby, who later changed his name to Arthur Nielsen for some reason. He was a cellist from Manchester, Ruth was the fifth of six children, born in northern Wales in 1926. But the family soon relocated to Basingstoke, which is a town in in sort of the centre of southern England. Does that make sense? Yeah, I was just trying to visualise It's kind of near, because you can get a train to it fairly quickly from London, but I've addressed this before. I don't really know what goes on outside of these walls outside of London. (laughs) It's like a foreign place to me. Like, I don't really know anything about it. Ruth Ellis, then called Ruth Nielsen, um, left school at 14 years old. She began working as a waitress and then in 1941 she moved to London along with the rest of her family. In 1944 she became pregnant by a Canadian soldier. She was only 17 when this happened. She named her son Claire Andrea Nielsen, which is an interesting name because they're both names Mm. I'd associate with girls. Um, But Claire was actually the name of the father. So I don't know if that was a common Canadian name. Claire does sound like it could be a unisex name. Yeah, I think it's one of those names that used to be unisex and now we only associate it with one. Like, um, there's another one that's very much like that. Like, I think think Madison was only ever... Like, obviously it started as a last Uh, name, but I think Madison was a boy's name. And now you would really only think of it as a girl's name, mostly. Courtney. That's the one I was trying to think of. Courtney used to be a boy's name. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, now it's more associated with girls. But Ruth called her son Andy, normally, um, not Claire, even though Claire was the first name, which I can relate to. I don't know why parents do this, <laughs> but my first name isn't yeah. my speaking given to me name either. The 
child would end up being raised by Ruth's mother and the father, who was actually married, um, stopped paying child support after a while, after about a year. So I guess he figured, like, yeah, I'll just slip out the back. Like, one year seems reasonable, (laughs) seems fair. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Um, So Ruth continued to work a string of jobs, from office jobs to factory jobs. Um, But she started doing nude modelling to make extra money, and eventually this transitioned into becoming a nightclub hostess. So I wasn't exactly sure what that entailed, especially, like, back in the day. I think mostly she was waitressing, she was interacting with customers, she was entertaining them socially... Um, checking customers in at the door, taking reservations, that sort of thing. Um, but that might have been the surface of it, but I'm sure there was like a CD side to lots of mm. these things, um, particularly because the manager, Morris Connolly, would regularly blackmail the hostesses who worked at his club into sleeping with him. Ruth then gets into sex work. And by 1950, age 23, um, this was one of her major jobs. At one point, she got pregnant by one of her clients and she had to have an abortion, which was illegal at the time in the UK. So she had to have probably highly dangerous um, back alley procedure to terminate the pregnancy. Um, I'm not recounting these aspects of her life to paint her in a poor light or anything, but because I think they paint a picture of her life, um, Mm. the things that she's gone through the hard things that she's gone through at a young age. She's still really young for all these things to have happened. Um, She's still in her early 20s and she's gone through quite a lot of extreme circumstances. Ruth marries in November 1950. She marries a man called George Johnston Ellis, whose name she would take and become Ruth Ellis. Um, George was a divorcee. Um, He was a dentist. He had two sons from a previous marriage and he had been a customer at one of the clubs that Ruth worked at. Unfortunately, um, he wasn't only an alcoholic, but he was extremely jealous and very paranoid. And to top that off, he was also violent. (laughs) So (laughs) So like a real cocktail of like stellar qualities in a man. Um, The marriage was doomed to a cycle of breakups and reconciliations with Ruth leaving George several times only to return for him to then drive her away again with constant accusations of infidelity. This mean and paranoid streak in George also led him to deny the paternity of their child, a a daughter named Georgina, and finally the marriage ended in divorce. In 1953, things changed dramatically for Ruth. Her circumstances changed when she became the manager of the Little Club. The Little Club was a nightclub in Knightsbridge, which is an area of central London that certainly now, um, I'm sure at the time as well, it was and is very upscale, um, expensive, wealthy area of the city and the clientele at Ruth's nightclub certainly represented this Um, they brought her lavish gifts many of them were celebrities of the time as well and she became friends with a number of local and uh, even national celebrities one of these celebrity friends was a racing driver called Mike Hawthorne who would become the UK's first Formula One champion world champion in 1958 he introduced Ruth to David Blakely who was another racer himself Although David was engaged to another woman, he quickly moved into Ruth's flat above the little club. He was said to be well-mannered and well-educated, but sadly, uh, he was also struggling with his relationship with alcohol. The two began a tumultuous affair, which was also blighted by violence. Um, Ruth became pregnant by David, but had an abortion again due to her concerns that she wasn't as committed to the relationship as David was. Ruth's life quickly began to fall apart during this time. She was sacked as manager of the Little Club, which had to have been difficult. 
she began seeing another man called Desmond Cusson. And in fact, David was also seeing other women. Um, but despite this, they didn't seem to be able to call time on the relationship and leave each other alone. Um, <laughs> even when Ruth moved in with Desmond Cousin after sh- uh, cousin Cousin after she lost her job, and as a result, her flat above the club also, the relationship between her and David continued. It became more and more strained and violent. David even caused Ruth to miscarry another pregnancy in January of 1955 by punching her in the abdomen during a particularly extreme argument. Jesus Christ. So it's not going well. It's <laughs> a summary. It's not. Like, the thing is, I feel like she's doing... She's really trying so hard to, like, get her life on track. And every time the, well, just Yeah, something. the one thing you can say is that, like, she's consistently tried to provide a life for her children. That's, um, mm. that's true. Eventually, all the arguments, bitterness, alcohol, violence and drama came to a head on Easter Sunday of that year. It was the 10th of April, 1955. That evening, Ruth approached 29 Tanza Road, Hampstead, where she believed David was staying at the time. As she arrived at the address, she saw David's car driving off, and she followed on foot. He hadn't gone far. She walked just less than half a kilometre to the Magdala, which was a nearby pub, and his car was parked outside. Ruth waited until 9.30pm when David and a friend exited the pub together. Um, It doesn't say when she started waiting, but this seemed to me like a really long time to wait. Because <laughs> I don't why know, it like, feel, felt like he, the afternoon. Why is he driving? Because that's not very far. No, half a kilometre is like... He's driving to go and drink, I, know, I assume. Yes. So Not great. I also had the image of her like sprinting after his car. <laughs> yeah, me too. I was also <laughs> like, why would you... Like, how does she know? Because surely within minutes, he's out of sight. How would she know where to go? Yeah, unless there's, like, traffic or something. At 9.30pm, David and a friend exited the pub together. David saw Ruth as he and his friend passed her coming out of a news news agent next door, but he was determined to ignore her completely. She greeted him with, Hello, David, and when she got no response, shouted his name, but he continued to ignore her as he went to his car and began searching for his keys in his pockets. As he did so, Ruth drew a... 38 caliber Smith and Wesson revolver from her handbag. So don't ignore this bitch. <laughs> Speak to her. She asked you a question. <laughs> um, the first shot she fired missed David and he began to run around the, to the other side of the car. Ruth followed and fired a second shot. This time it was a hit that brought David to the floor. She was then seen standing over David and shot him three more times at such close range that there were gunpowder burns on the skin of his back. She attempted to fire a sixth shot, which ricocheted off the ground. The ricocheting bullet caused a minor injury to a bystander. Ruth was in shock after killing David. She turned to Clive Gunnell, the friend who had been at the pub with David, and asked him, Will you call the police, Clive? Imagine being Clive in this situation. Yeah. An off-duty <laughs> policeman was among the witnesses and arrested Ruth, who appeared calm and stated, I am guilty. I'm a little confused. David's multiple bullet wounds had caused damage to many of his major organs and he was taken to hospital where he was pronounced dead. So this has gotten to the far end of dramatic and finally this turbulent relationship has concluded and it's concluded in this sort of sudden tragedy, but also a sort of sort of predictable when you look back at it. Like it's like the logical yeah. progression of this increasingly twisted, violent, unstable situation. Ruth Ellis was taken to Hampstead Police Station, which would have been fairly nearby, and she was noted by the officers to be sober, very clear-headed, 
She made a very calm confession with lots of detail, and naturally after that she was charged with the murder of David Blakely. On the day after the murder, 11th of April 1955, Ruth Ellis first appeared in court to receive the order that she was to be held on remand until trial. She was held at Holloway, the women's prison. While she waited for her trial date, Ruth was examined by several people to determine her competency and her mental state. The principal medical officer reported that Ruth displayed no signs of mental illness, as did both psychiatrists for the defence and for the Home Office. By the way, when I was researching this case is when I actually learned that I think the Home Office in the UK is the entity you're defending yourself against when you commit a crime. So it's like you versus the Home Office. (laughs) I didn't know that at all. I didn't really know what the Home Office really was. Um... (laughs) It's like how in America, it's like the state of Maine versus John Smith or or the people versus, you know, so-and-so. So the home office is that thing. I think it's in control of a lot of different things and like many different arms of the government, but crime is one of those things. And remember when we did the case, episode four of season one, the Luton sack murder. In that Mm. one, I mentioned a pathologist who worked for the home office. And I think... yeah. I think what I say. Is he back? No. <laughs> what I say in that in that one is, oh, that's weird. The Home Office employs a pathologist, but oh, okay. what actually makes turns out now. that makes perfect sense and actually isn't weird at all. <laughs> so, so that was interesting. Learn something new every day. Anyway, on the twentieth of June, nineteen fifty-five, Ruth Ellis appeared at the Old Bailey to face trial for murder. Now. If you see images of Ruth, she has a very specific style, sort of like a Marilyn look with blonde hair and she's well dressed. And I would say I would say that it's classy, but it's not very subtle. It's quite a provocative way to dress, especially for the time. Background. Yeah. Um, So she did not tone it down for her murder trial. Um. Her striking appearance worried her defence counsel, um, who believed that her freshly bleached and styled hair, silk blouse and black suit would not encourage sympathy from the jury. However, Ruth did not change her style as they advised. And at the time, um, probably still now, how you look at your trial is a big factor in how people Mm. perceive you. Um, The prosecutor was a man by the name of Christmas Humphreys. Christmas? (laughs) (laughs) what What? am i right this definitely made me want to look up this guy um Mm. and i did and he he was known for prosecuting several high profile and controversial cases during the 40s and 50s um he was also known for being one of the most known british converts to buddhism just fyi really isn't that interesting his house christmas his house in st john's wood (laughs) is now a buddhist temple um oh my god he founded the london buddhist society in 1924 just some fun extra factoids for everyone on Christmas Humphreys. <laughs> but it's kind of funny that his name is literally Christmas. And he's like, I've decided to be a Buddhist. <laughs> uh, Christmas only... <laughs> Sorry, it's actually funnier than I thought it would be. <laughs> Christmas only asked Ruth Ellis one question during the trial. That question was as follows. When you fired the revolver at close range into the body of David Blakely, what did you intend to do? Ruth answered... I mean, that's a solid question. Yeah. Ruth answered, (laughs) It's very obvious that when I shot him, I intended to kill him. There was no way for her to escape a guilty verdict for this answer. Because 
she had just confirmed that she had premeditated she had pre a premeditated desire to kill him yeah and basically that that answer also waived any possibility for an insanity verdict because it showed prior forethought um which which i mean was already there with her having the gun but it was just confirmed by this so not only could she not avoid that verdict but she couldn't avoid the mandatory sentence for that crime which was the death penalty Mm. at the time as much as i'm in like ruth's corner Christmas fucking nailed it. Yeah, no, right he totally gate. was just like, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> he totally nailed it. Um, the jury returned this verdict of guilty after about 20 minutes. Um, so Ruth's mother started the campaign to get reprieve from the death penalty. However, Ruth herself didn't take part in the campaign to change her sentence, which is interesting. She remained at Holloway Prison to await execution. Her relatives worked to get her solicitor to write a letter to the Home Secretary. That is, for anyone who doesn't know, the person in charge of the Home Office um, and UK Home Affairs. And that's the person that has the power to pardon someone or to change the sentence or to offer clemency, as you might call it, or whatever. Um, The letter was unsuccessful and the request was denied. Um, It would later come out that the trial judge, Sir Cecil... is, Is that how you say that name? Cecil or Cecil? I think you can say both. Like, old-fashioned okay. people will probably say Cecil. Sir... C- well, let's go with Cecil. Sir Cecil Havers. I think Cecil. No, I think I'm going to go know. with Cecil. I only have to say it once, so I don't know why I'm talking about it so much. Sir <laughs> Cecil Havers had himself written to the Home Secretary and recommended that Ruth receive a reprieve, as it was a crime of passion, which is... Um, a specific thing and a crime of passion is a thing that comes from french as i understand mm. it crime du passionel something <laughs> yeah is that correct <laughs> <laughs> yeah um which is like uh, a crime committed in the heat of the moment and it's a special allowance for the emotional like weight of it which is, mm. seems like a very french thing it's so french, yes so i love that it's like, no, but sometimes we just get so emotional that we kill people, and that's okay. <laughs> and come on, guys, can't we just, like, understand and let that go a little bit? I mean, we all have them, right? <laughs> Moments of murderous passion. Um, and that crime of passion thing is supposed to sort of outweigh sufficient premeditation in a certain amount of... So it's just... yeah. At the same time, though, she waited for him. No, I'm I'm not even time. arguing with it. It's totally a premeditated crime. It's, she totally intended to kill him. I'm not arguing with it. I just... Um, well, she's not even arguing with it. She's not arguing with it either. Um, my next question for you was going to be, what do you think of this? But I guess we're at that point. Like, but like, what are you thinking right now about this whole situation? The thing is, her calmness is weird. No, not weird. But it is just like, no, you know decided to kill this guy because he's a piece of shit basically <laughs> and that's that and i'm gonna die for it you know that's just the way it goes i guess her life has been so hard that it is just like you know what you just accept it mm. but it is at the same time she's got these two kids which is obviously sad i don't know yeah and as i said ruth did not want to campaign for a reprieve so when she found out that her solicitor had followed her family's requests and written to the home secretaries she dismissed him um, and she asked to see the clerk who worked under Victor Mishcon, who was a um, lawyer whose firm represented her during her divorce. Oh, okay. um, the clerk and Victor went to visit Ruth's dismissed lawyer before they meet. They met Ruth. 
This lawyer, Bickford, encouraged them strongly to press Ruth on the story and on where the gun had come from, um, as I assume he had unsuccessfully been doing uh, in order to get something he could use to Mm. get a reprieve, um, which was obviously against Ruth's wishes. Victor Mishkorn and his Clark Simmons took this advice and they went to see Ruth to arrange her will on the 12th of July 1955, the day before she was scheduled for execution. They asked her more questions about what happened on the day of the murder. Ruth asked Mishkon if he would promise not to use anything she told him to campaign for a reprieve. And Mishkon refused to make this promise. But um, mm. Ruth began to tell him the story anyway. She said that it was Desmond Cusson, her other lover, who had given her the gun and taught her how to fire it. Ruth said they had been drinking together for most of that weekend before the murder. She also said that Desmond Cusson had driven her to the murder scene, although I'm not certain of where he actually drove her to, because... Well, maybe he dropped her off. In my other source, and what I said earlier, was that she took a cab to Tanzer Road in Hampstead, where she believed Mm. David was living. So, I'm before walking to the pub, which is documented, so I'm not sure about that part, but that's what she said happened. But now I guess... It makes sense that she's not talking about it. Right. Since she wants to protect this guy. After two hours speaking to Ruth about this, Mishkon and Simmons went to the Home Office with the new information. In the end, although police made inquiries to verify the story, it was ultimately decided by the Home Secretary that the new story would not affect the decision. And I don't see how it could. I mean, like, in their view, that doesn't really affect anything. I guess from her defence's perspective, they were saying, well, this guy's sort of, like, egging her on. He's giving her the weapon. And like dropping her off. He's an accomplice and therefore there needs to be a new trial or something like that. My question is, what is this guy's like endgame? I understand that you're like jealous or whatever and you want this guy out of her life. Mm. What is the plan once she (laughs) goes down for his murder though? Yeah, Yeah, I don't (laughs) know. I mean, I feel like all these people are just like alcoholic just Yeah, they're not really thinking not really thinking through the things that they're doing and just living a quite a randomized lifestyle (laughs) but the home secretary stated that actually ruth had showed even further evidence of premeditation by revealing the story so that kind of blew up in um her face a little bit although it didn't blow up in her face as she didn't really care one way or the other but blew up in the lawyer's faces anyway the Mm. injury to the bystander who was hit by the ricocheting sixth bullet was also a factor in this decision um, because the Home Secretary wanted to be very tough on any activity involving firearms in public. So he wanted to make a stance that, you know, like, it's not okay for you to just be out in public killing people with guns, which which is <laughs> yeah, fine, I get it. Um, <laughs> Ruth wrote a final letter before her execution to her victim's parents, to David Blakely's parents. In it, she wrote mm. that she had always loved David and in that quote, I shall die loving him. On the morning of the 13th of July, 1955, the Bishop of Stepney visited Ruth. She was then taken to the execution room just before 9am by the hangman and his assistant. She was hung and buried in an unmarked grave at the prison, which was the norm um, for people that were hung. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't sound... <laughs> the case provoked not only a huge amount of public interest and debate, but also some very intense media coverage. Petitions were signed by thousands of people to offer Ruth... Ruth. That's a hard. It's a hard word to say in a sentence, actually, Ruth, because the next word is reprieve. Oh, really to offer Ruth and an offer as well. That also muddies the waters. Mm. To offer Ruth reprieve. <laughs> Petitions were signed by thousands of people to offer Ruth reprieve. 
hundreds wrote letters begging for her life, but all were denied by the Home Secretary. The case certainly gathered attention due to the fact that Ruth was a woman, um, but it resulted in many commentators questioning whether the death penalty had a place in the 20th century, not just for women, um, but for anyone. And it seemed to sort of open people's eyes to the fact that this was still a mandated punishment. Um, it started mm. to seem medieval and outdated. And I think it was the fact that she was a woman that kind of maybe made people stop and think about how barbaric it was. Yeah. But um, but it wasn't just women that they wanted to outlaw it for. It was it was everyone. Well, I guess like once you start thinking about it, it sort of applies to everyone. It'd be weird to be like pro-death penalty only for men well i'm pro death penalty for men i'm just kidding <laughs> all men actually instantly between 19 <laughs> between 1926 and 1954 677 men and 60 women had been sentenced to death in england and wales but only 375 men and seven women had been executed so it was hardly a common punishment by the time of ruth's conviction um it wasn't normal for like it was more normal that you would get clemency because it was still a mandated punishment but there was so often a circumstance that your lawyer could argue for that you rarely actually saw the gallows yeah. as it were i guess maybe also more like convicts were trying to get out of it whereas in her case it's just kind of like no I'm fine with it. Yeah, yeah. You know? So I think seeing such a high-profile case with an execution kind of reminded people that, oh, yeah, we still we still do this. We still do like, that. Like, I think people didn't really notice it because it wasn't in the papers every time someone got executed, you know? It was just um, because this case was more high-profile. Um, a lot of people yeah. identified with Ruth. A lot of women identified with Ruth being in a relationship that was violent, that seemed inescapable, and they pitied her or empathised even. Others pointed out that David wasn't speaking to Ruth. Ruth sought him out. Um, she was upset that he wasn't coming back to her and she went mm. at, to his place with a gun. So she was the aggressor, at least in that final situation, when she could have made a different choice. Yeah. But there's the fact that this woman has been abused in a way she's li that is, she's literally been punched to the point of having a miscarriage you know there's like there's no excuse yeah. for that kind of behavior even if she was like the worst woman ever and she's so mean and horrible to you all the time there's <laughs> no if you argue all the time if she's horrible there's no reason to beat her up and there's no reason to make her have a miscarriage like in a civilized yeah. society many argued that the sentence would not have been carried out even in the u.s um because of ruth's extremely turbulent life and that, mm. that this wouldn't have been considered a normal sentence. Other people said, oh, you know, you just want to go soft because she's a woman or because she's an alcoholic um, and that you should just go soft on her. And I guess, like, for me, it's not the womanhood of her. It's, it is the alcoholism and it is the turbulent life and it is those, all of those things yeah. are meant, like, they can say she had no mental illnesses, but all of those things are mental illnesses, you know, like, yeah, I mean, it's not like she's. Yeah, I don't think that you like, will be. You're not all there if you're constantly no. trying to seek out a relationship where, where you're being beaten up all the time. Like you can't no. be. That's not a happy person with a well-adjusted state of mind. No, exactly. That's like a a sign of someone who is actually in a lot of trouble, and um, probably needs help. So you know, there's just a few different ways to look at it, and that's why it's sort yeah. of interesting. The death penalty was suspended ten years later in 1965 
after the last hanging in Britain, uh, which was in 1964, of Gwyn Evans and Peter Allen, uh, two men who murdered a man called John Allen West during a home robbery. The death penalty was then finally formally abolished in 1969. There have been a number of extreme crimes that caused debate in Britain, even as recently as the last two decades, as to whether the death penalty should be reinstated. Some of those were the Moore's murders, um, trialed in 1966, which was just one year after the death penalty was suspended, yeah. uh, in which Ian Brady and Myra Hindley murdered five children. The Yorkshire Ripper case in 1981, and Ian Huntley, the caretaker who killed two 10-year-old girls in 2002. It's always with the kids as well. Yeah, that's like what gets people people's get... back up, isn't it? Um, mm. A survey in 2009, which is just 10... I mean, that's actually 11 years ago, not 10 years ago. M- me wanting to undo 2020, <laughs> like, subconsciously. <laughs> I'm like, it's still 2019, we can try again. <laughs> um the result of that survey was 70% of the public supported the death penalty in the UK for really? specific crimes such as murder. Oh. A 2011 survey found 65% re- support for reinstatement. So that's more than enough to, like, if there was a referendum, that's more than enough to get that motion passed if they were going to do it. The strongest yeah. result was always for crimes relating to paedophilia, terrorism, child murder stuff like that it's always the very extreme cases like child murder that get people riled up and wanting the death penalty back and i and i don't blame them for feeling that way Mm. um but i mean but like you know you know my feelings on the death penalty and i all i think when i hear that 70 percent of people may want the death penalty is i'm actually glad that the goddamn general public (laughs) the great (laughs) the great british public don't get a say (laughs) in this because like we talked about it before but like i get that there are some crimes where you might want someone dead and you might think that they deserve to be dead and maybe they mm. do deserve to be dead but you just can't give the state to the power so to kill much, yeah it's so much power that can be used so arbitrarily it's scary that it's, it's like, just a slippery slope it's not something that belongs in a modern society in my opinion like you know wrongful convictions happen in innocent people mm. have been killed and innocent people are in prison right now for things they didn't do and it's been many a case where an innocent person who's been in prison for something that would have received the death penalty it's proven that the death penalty doesn't reduce crime effectively which i think is really important because no matter how terrible a person is i think death is not really a punishment i mean having to exist in general is so bad <laughs> you should just make life them, is so much make worse. Experience it. But um, it doesn't bring that person back. It doesn't achieve anything. And at the end of the day, that's that on that. <laughs> but I do <laughs> think so I do think it's interesting though, and it is it is an interesting it's debate. It's interesting that so many people support right. it. Right? Yeah, I I think that as well. But I think, but it, Britain is like I was just talking about this earlier to my dad and my brother. That Britain is actually a con- very conservative country, like culturally. Mm like knee-jerk kind of people like we have a lot of instant reactions that (laughs) we should be protected from ourselves no but there's a sort of mentality i don't know if this is specific to like the uk but it is like if you do something then you deserve that thing to be done to you right yeah there's a sense of like weird justice yeah that's yeah exactly present i feel like yeah 
But interestingly, another survey in 2015 showed that the public support for reinstating the death penalty had dropped to 48%, which seems a little less wild and maybe a bit more representative of the opinions of most people that I yeah. know as well. And like, just... I guess it depends who's doing the survey, who they're asking. It definitely, they're asking yeah, it, it definitely depends on the thing. But I think if I, if I was to make a guess at how many people genuinely want it... I would have thought it would be something like 48. It's going to be something like yeah. the Remain Lee figures, like quite close. Um, and toss up, it could be like whatever day you did a re- referendum on, you could get 52, <laughs> yeah. 48 one way or the other. There continue to be campaigns for reinstatement though. And um, since abolition, there have been parliamentary attempts to bring it back. However, since the UK has been a part of the EU, it's not allowed to have the death penalty. So... Oh. That actually, so that is actually <laughs> the whole thing. When we're actually not allowed, I didn't know this. I actually didn't know this. But in if you're in the EU, you're not allowed to have the death penalty because it's it's hmm. a human rights violation, which I totally agree with. But now, the world yeah, is at our feet. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we might get back now because we're leaving so we can do whatever we want and suck it france (laughs) so that's the social impact i'll just finish up by mentioning the aftermath among ruth's family um george ellis ruth's husband ended up ending his own life by hanging three years after ruth's death um ruth's mother also apparently attempted suicide by filling a room in her flat with gas she was unsuccessful but she was forever impaired by that attempt and she would never be able to speak properly for the rest of her life so that's hardcore in the 1970s all the remains of executed women at holloway prison were exhumed and they were reburied in other places um, which is interesting i guess they just <laughs> they didn't want where to rebury them why wouldn't you just cremate them or something i I have no idea. I guess they wouldn't know what their wishes were. And in a sense, being buried is almost like mm. default still for us. Ruth was buried in the yard of St. Mary's Church in Amersham alongside a headstone. This headstone would be destroyed by her son, Andy, um, oh. who would then sadly also commit suicide in 1982. So, I mean, he's had a rough life. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I imagine. Super rough. His childhood wasn't Oh yeah, for sure, <laughs> great. for sure. And I can understand why he'd have so much anger towards his mother. Yeah. For sure. Um, Something interesting is that after Ruth's death, the judge of her trial, Sir Cecil Havers, I did have to say it another time. (laughs) I didn't think I'd have to say it again, but here he is again. Sir Cecil Havers would actually send money to ensure that Andy was looked after, which is interesting. And then when Andy committed suicide, um, his funeral was paid for by none other than Christmas Humphreys. So... All of these people who are sort of involved, I think, feel a degree of, if not guilt, then like sadness about how everything had sort of worked out and what they had to do, as it were. Ruth's daughter Georgina was fostered to a new family after her father George's death. Some people have supported pardon campaigns for Ruth Ellis in light of the involvement of Desmond Cusson and also the fact that David Blakely was abusive. But these have been unsuccessful with the court commenting in 2003 that Ruth was unquestionably guilty and sentenced under the law at the time. So it was not a matter for public concern. The case nevertheless continues to attract attention and inspire film, television and theatre to this day. So that's the story of Ruth Ellis, the last woman to be hung in the UK. Very interesting turning point in UK criminal history. And it shows how 
black and white the law can be with that one single question by the prosecutor all hinged on did you mean to kill him yes there's no room in the law to argue Mm. for ruth's experience in life and in relationships to have some way contributed to what she did there was no room for nuance she had been to the hospital for some of the injuries she'd received from david blakely she'd had a pregnancy that had been lost to that violence um it's not an excuse to murder for murdering him of course but it's it's a starting point for mercy i think so you know i would never say i would never say like yeah go on girl like good job (laughs) but it's like (laughs) it's a starting point to give someone a little bit of mercy like she obviously intended to kill him but no normal person goes out intending to kill another person there has to be a reason for that and to not look into the reasons for it seems yeah i feel like it's a bit yeah yeah it's a starting point for not hanging a person and instead having them spend their life in prison for example something else um Mm. in the words of mp sydney silverman who campaigned to abolish the death penalty quote she seems to most people a normal human all too human being weak foolish and hypersensitive I think that sums it up, in a sense. Yeah. Um, everyone that you kill for with a death penalty is a person, no matter how you might want to feel mm. that they're a monster because they've taken someone's life. Everyone is a person at the end of the day who's made decisions, yeah. who's had things happen to them. So it's just something that we should all be thinking about, I think. I find it interesting how people were very, like... She was very humanised, I feel mm. like. And people had a sort of positive response to her which is quite rare in these cases of women committing murder yeah you're right where they're often quite demonized that way around actually and it's true and i i think it was just that so much was changing at that time that we Mm. were open for all of these conversations a bit more than we might have been at a different time in our history but um thank you for listening to a podcast about murder we hope you are enjoying the new season of episodes so far and having a great day don't forget to follow us on social media instagram at a podcast about murder twitter at about murder facebook at a podcast about murder with no e and on youtube search channels for a podcast about murder um same time next week have a great whatever that time whatever time that may be (laughs) have a great weekend um cool